What new is there to learn about the dinosaurs and what do we not still know? Paleontologist Steve Brusati joins us to talk about his new book, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. What new evil arises in the latest Stephen King? Novelist and critic Victor Laval and Gilbert Cruz, culture editor here at The Times, join me to talk about Stephen King's latest novel, The Outsider, and, frankly, all of Stephen King. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the publishing world. And as many of our listeners know, Philip Roth recently died. Joining me to talk about Roth and his legacy, our book critic Dwight Garner, A.O. Scott, our co-chief film critic here at The Times, and Taffy Brodesser-Ackner, a culture writer at The Times. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Joining us now from Edinburgh, Steve Brusati, author of The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, A New History of a Lost World. Steve, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Pamela. So what are you doing in Edinburgh? Because you, you're American, as we can hear. I am. I am. I'm definitely not Scottish. You can tell from my accent. I grew up uh, in the Midwest, in the Chicago area. But about five and a half years ago, I moved to Edinburgh. The academic world is uh, a world where you never know where you might travel to to, to get a job. And so uh, the University of Edinburgh hired me to teach geology and paleontology, and I've really had a blast here. It's a great university, and we're finding a lot of dinosaurs here in Scotland, which makes it even more fun to be here. Wow. And you also get to do British things like, aren't you the resident paleontologist on the BBC's Walking with Dinosaurs program? That's right. That's right. It's a very British title, too, as a resident paleontologist. Um, it means pretty much that I work with some of the folks at BBC when they're doing some of the Walking with Dinosaurs programming. So a few years ago, there was a film that I consulted on, and there's various books and exhibits and websites and other things. So to become a paleontologist is kind of like one of those little kid fantasy jobs. Did it start in childhood with you? <laughs> it didn't. I was not one of those five-year-old kids that knows the name of every dinosaur and can spell the dinosaurs and pronounce them all. I meet kids like that all the time when I go into schools, and my wife is a school teacher, so I go into her class, and so many of her kids are like that, but that was not me. When I was that age, science was probably my least favorite class in school, but my youngest brother was totally obsessed with dinosaurs, and when he saw Jurassic Park, he turned his bedroom into a dinosaur museum, and he built a little dinosaur library there. And it was through him that I got into dinosaurs and fossils and paleontology. And it was around the time that I started high school. So how does that turn into a job? What did you then go on to study, and, and what, is your, what do you specialize in? It is kind of a weird job, you know, <laughs> with the benefit of hindsight to think about it, you know, making a, a career in such a, a niche field like paleontology. Uh, but it is a growing field, and there are more and more jobs out there. And most of us uh, paleontologists work at either universities or museums. And the normal route to go is to go off to college and study geology or study biology, and then go to graduate school. And you're in school for, you know, it was about a decade for me I was in college until you get your PhD. Uh, and then you go off and try to, you know, stake your own claims, go out and try to find dinosaurs and, and, and build up your career that way. And what is the current job of a paleontologist? What is there left? Like, are there particular areas in the study of dinosaurs that are sort of the hot areas, the things where we're still discovering a lot or, or changing our previous ideas about? Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the things that I try to get across in the book, because you might think that, okay, you know, these dinosaurs, they lived tens, hundreds of millions of years ago. These are dusty old bones, and there's probably not a whole lot new to learn. Or you might think people have been looking for dinosaurs for a while, so maybe they're like coal or oil or diamonds. You know, we're getting close to getting exhausted, and then we're not finding many new things. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. And right now, is the golden age of dinosaur research. Somebody somewhere around the world is finding a new species of dinosaur now, on average, once a week. Wow. So that's 50-some new species a year, and that's not a new bone or a new skeleton. That's a totally new type of dinosaur that we never knew existed before. And what's doing that is 
the great diversity of especially young people around the world that are studying paleontology and going out and finding their own dinosaurs. And what used to be a fairly elite science has now become a global science. And it's countries like China and Argentina and Brazil, these enormous countries that are developing so quickly, training their own young scientists, women and men. That's what's causing this. And so, so many of those new discoveries are coming from places you might not expect, north of the Arctic Circle in Alaska, from Antarctica, from New Zealand. And then we're using new technologies to study these fossils, CAT scanners to see inside of the skulls, to let us see what the brains of dinosaurs looked like, or computer animation software to see how dinosaurs moved, how they fed. So we put all that together, and it is a really exciting time right now in paleontology, and it doesn't show signs of stopping. So for all the young people out there, there's still a whole lot more to find. There's still work to be done. You've discovered and named 15 new species of dinosaurs yourself. What, what, what's that been like? What was it like the first time? It is such a thrill. And I know I'm so lucky to be able to do this thing as a job because to, to find a fossil is, is just one of those indescribable things where you're out and you come across something and you're the first person who has ever seen it and it's millions or maybe even tens or hundreds of millions of years old and you find this thing and it's a clue, a clue to a vanished world and you're the one who has to put that clue together and figure out what this fossil was and what kind of world it lived in. And, and so it's just a whole lot of fun to do that and, and all of these new dinosaurs that I've worked on, it's all been collaborative. Nobody just goes out and finds a dinosaur themselves and, 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 you know, digs it up and names it and describes it. But these are all big team efforts. And I've been really fortunate to work with a lot of people all over the world, great colleagues in China, across Europe, back home in North America. So by working together and going to a lot of uh, interesting places, we've just found a lot of new fossils. And when we find new things, we get to name them. <laughs> we get to come up with some some name to give them. And we're getting very creative these days. It's not just something or other saurus anymore, but we're using a lot of uh, local languages to give names, to pay homage to, to the areas they come from. And here in Scotland, uh, on the Isle of Skye, where we're doing field work, we're starting to find some new species, and we're starting to give them Gallic names, names uh, based on the, the ancient language of the highlands. So it's all just a whole lot of fun. So there's no Brassadiosaurus, is what you're saying? <laughs> There is not. One of the rules is you can't name it after yourself if you find a new species. Um, not that I Who would made that to do rule? That. That would just, <laughs> it's just part of the, the rules of nomenclature. And you would think most people wouldn't want to do it, but, you know, we do have a few Kanye West kind of characters in our field that would probably do it immediately if they could. Uh, so someday, I suppose, if somebody wanted to name one after me, they could. Um, and, you know, some of the, our, our very eminent um, scientists. Uh, do get dinosaurs named in their honor sometime. But right now, I would much rather find them and study them myself than have somebody you know, name one after me. So one of the biggest discoveries that sort of overturned the prevailing accepted science during my lifetime is sort of along the lines of, you know, Pluto isn't a planet, is that birds are dinosaurs. How do we know this? It's a wild idea, isn't it? And I'm looking out my window now, and because we're really close to the North Sea here in Edinburgh, there's always gulls flying around. And there's, there's a gull flying around right now. And it's just incredible to think of that animal as a living dinosaur. And, and it is. It is a dinosaur. It's as much a dinosaur as a T-Rex is or a Brontosaurus is. It has dinosaur DNA. It has dinosaur blood flowing through its veins. And we know that from fossils. This isn't some kind of guess, but we know this from fossils. And there's been a lot of evidence that has accumulated since... Way back in the 1860s, actually, the time of Darwin, the first suggestions were made that birds evolved from dinosaurs. But it wasn't until just about 20 years ago in northeastern China that an amazing discovery sealed the deal. And this was the discovery of the first dinosaur fossil with feathers. And that just ended the debate because if it's feathers, nothing else alive today has feathers, only birds. So if you find a dinosaur with feathers, that ended it. And it wasn't just one, though. Then the floodgates opened, and now we have thousands of fossils of these feathered dinosaurs, many different species from China mostly, but from other parts of the world. And the ones in China, they had the misfortune of living in this very lush jungle ecosystem, which was great for them, but periodically it would be buried by volcanoes. So almost Pompeii-style, these dinosaurs, they'd get buried 
going about their everyday business. So they didn't have time to decay. They didn't have time to get eaten by predators. That's why the feathers were preserved. And it's, it's an astounding thing, really, to think that this only happened about 20 years ago. This is all so new. I even remember reading about this in my small hometown newspaper in northern Illinois when I was in high school that a feather dinosaur had been found, and it blew my mind, and it wasn't that long ago. Apparently, even the T-Rex had feathers, which I, I kind of feel somewhat ruins our image of, of this kind of horrible, <laughs> monstrous creature. Yep. If you see the Jurassic Park films, there's no feathers on the T-Rexes. But on the, on the cover of my book, we have a T-Rex, and it has feathers on it. And that doesn't mean it has wings. It doesn't mean it's flying around. But it has this coat of very simple feathers, feathers that look a lot like hair. And we don't know for 100% certainty that T-Rex itself did have feathers because the bones of T-Rex come from places like Montana and South Dakota, and they were buried in rivers, and they weren't buried by volcanoes. So the soft bits of the skeletons didn't really preserve out there. But what we do know is that in China, where those volcanoes were burying dinosaurs, there are two species of tyrannosaurs, two of the very closest cousins of T-Rex, that both have feathers. And so that's a really good sign that T-Rex itself probably had feathers too. And that does really change the image of T-Rex. It doesn't fit with that stereotype we have of this enormous uh, school bus size, green, scaly, reptilian animal chasing you down. But to me, really, I think T-Rex is even more frightening if you envision it in this mangy coat of feathers. I think birds can be pretty scary, and I think the feathers make T-Rex an even weirder, nastier, more nightmarish type of animal. Actually, the word mangy may have persuaded me. But you, <laughs> you bring up another really important issue, which is the Jurassic Park movies, and how realistic and unrealistic are they? I mean, what did they get like really embarrassingly wrong, for example? You know, I could rip on Jurassic Park, and there are certain inaccuracies, of course, but I'm not really going to do that because I love Jurassic Park. <laughs> I love the film. When I saw it in the cinema for the first time, I wasn't really a dino geek yet, but it did just open a whole new world to me, and specifically for my brother, who, who really became obsessed. But that show... That movie brought dinosaurs to a whole new generation. It directly led to a lot of universities starting up paleontology courses, to a lot of museums building dinosaur exhibits. And there are many of my colleagues that got their jobs in the aftermath of Jurassic Park, specifically because of that movie. So it's been a great thing for our field. And yes, of course, the dinosaurs should have feathers on them. Yes, the T-Rex is running too fast. No, the T-Rex could have sensed you even if you didn't move. You know, these kind of little inaccuracies are right. there, but it's not uh, a documentary. No. Uh, this isn't Walking with Dinosaurs. This isn't BBC David Attenborough. This is a film and a blockbuster film at that, and I love it, and I just hope that the new one that's going to come out in a few weeks is is good fun. What are the issues that are sort of like the, the current controversies in the field or the things that you're still are still sort of really open to debate? There are still a lot of things we don't know about dinosaurs. In the book, I tell the story of dinosaurs, how they rose up from very humble beginnings, how they bested their rivals, some of these early crocodile animals, and then they took over the world. They spread around the world. They became huge. Some of them became birds. And then the rest of them fell very suddenly when the asteroid hit. And it's a nice, tidy story. We have a good story arc there, and we understand the broad outlines of that story. And a lot of that is from these new discoveries during this golden age. But there are still a lot of things we don't know about dinosaurs. There are gaps in that story, gaps that have to be filled in by the next generation of paleontologists. And one example of that, I think one of the biggest mysteries about dinosaurs that's still out there, is why they were able to survive this big mass extinction about 200 million years ago when their early competitors were not. So this was the time of the supercontinent, Pangaea. Everything was living on this one world. But this was a crocodile-dominated world. The dinosaurs were playing second fiddle to the crocs. There were crocs the size of buses. There were plant-eating crocs, crocs covered in armor, crocs that ran around on all fours like greyhounds. There were crocs that walked on two legs. There were even some crocs that lost all their teeth and had beaks. <laughs> they were the animals that ruled that world. But then Pangaea, the supercontinent, started to break apart. And as it did so, you had volcanoes erupting through those cracks in the Earth. And that led to one of the biggest mass extinctions of all time. It led to runaway global warming. 
from all the carbon dioxide being spewed out of those volcanoes. And the crocs couldn't handle that, and all of those crocs died except for a few species that are the ancestors of today's crocs. But the dinosaurs sailed right through. And it was on the other side, mm -hmm. in the Jurassic period, that the dinosaurs became truly dominant, that they spread around the world, that they evolved huge sizes. And we really don't know why the dinosaurs were able to handle that extinction and the crocs weren't. And there are various ideas out there, but none of them's really convincing. And to me, that's the biggest mystery that remains about dinosaurs. But there's many others as well. So is there a way for you in your sort of day-to-day -day scientific life to kind of help get at the answer as to, to, to that question? Yeah, so one of the things I, I did uh, quite a bit as a grad student was I, I did a lot of field work with a bunch of uh, great colleagues in Europe in places like Poland and Portugal and Lithuania. Um, a lot of field work was with my really good friend Richard Butler, who's a, a young British paleontologist, and we had colleagues um, across the continent. We were trying to find fossils of all of the animals that we could that were living around those times, just to better understand what the world was like and to better understand what the crocs were like and what the dinosaurs were like, what their skeletons were like, how they fed, how they moved, how big they were, how they were related to each other. And that in itself wouldn't solve a mystery like that, but it's setting the, the stage, it's collecting the clues, it, it, it's putting up that, that lineup of, of suspects there. And I think we're still at that stage now where, at least for this mystery, we're still collecting a lot of the data. We're still processing the crime scene, if you will. And it, it'll, it'll probably be some, some young gun, some, some young genius uh, who comes and is able to put all these clues together and figure out what happens. All right, I'm going to end with a question, an eight-year-old's question, although I feel like it's, a, it's the question all of us kind of want to know. What's your favorite dinosaur and why? Uh, of course. I, get it. I do get asked that question a lot, but I, I like to answer this question. And I actually have two answers to it, and I know that's not fair. But the first answer is, is whatever I'm studying at the time, whatever we've just recently found, whatever new species some colleague has invited me to help study, I just get so enthralled by whatever I'm working on in the moment that that kind of takes over. But that's not a real answer. So <laughs> the real answer, really, at the end of it all, regardless of all the places I've been to and all the dinosaurs I've, I've been you know, so, so fortunate to get to work on and describe, it all comes back to me to the greatest dinosaur of all. And it's a bit cliched, but it's T-Rex. It's <laughs> got to be T-Rex. And I, I just, There's just nothing alive today like a T-Rex. You go to a museum the American Museum in New York or the Field Museum in Chicago, my hometown museum, or countless other museums around the world, and you stand underneath the skeleton of a T-Rex, and you cannot fail to be mesmerized by this animal. This animal is more fantastic than dragons or sea monsters or unicorns or anything that humans have ever invented in mythology. But it was real. This was a real animal. It was an animal the size of a school bus. It weighed seven or eight tons. It had a head the size of a bathtub. It had 50-some railroad spike teeth in its jaws that could bite so hard they would crush through the bones of its prey. But then it had those pathetic little arms that still are such a mystery to us. And you put it all together, and it's a weird animal. It's a wonderful animal, and it's the biggest, baddest predator that has ever lived on land in the entire four-and-a-half billion-year history of the Earth. And I know I'm kind of <laughs> hyperbolizing, and I'm kind of getting away from myself here, but it just blows me away, and it still does. Having studied T-Rex now for over a decade, having dug up bones of T-Rex, when I walk into a museum and see a skeleton on display, it still just blows my mind. All right, then. <laughs> we will end with the T-Rex very appropriately. Steve Rosati, thank you so much for being here. Thanks a lot, Pamela. My pleasure. Uh, the book, again, is The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, A New History of a Lost World by Steve Rosati. Joining us now, novelist Victor Laval, whose most recent book, The Changeling, is now going to be a TV series on FX. He reviews this week The Outsider by Stephen King. And also joining us, Gilbert Cruz, the culture editor of The New York Times, and also Stephen King superfan. He has read every book that Stephen King has written. So thanks, both of you, for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank All you. right. So let's start with, with the new book. Victor, tell us about The Outsider. So The Outsider is the story of uh, a man named Terry Maitland who is 
accused of a crime, a vicious, vicious crime against the child. And there seems to be airtight evidence that he's the one who did it down to the DNA level. And so uh, he's arrested by a local cop who's deeply angry at him because this guy, Terry Maitland, was even the coach of his own kid's baseball team. And that sort of sense of righteous anger leads down a very strange path because it's absolutely true that all the evidence says Terry Maitland is guilty, but Terry Maitland swears up and down he is not. And then somehow both things are true. All right. Well, I'm very glad that you didn't give us any spoilers no, no, because no. this is a spoiler-free podcast, so we won't do that. So, look, where does this? Have you read this one yet, Gilbert? I haven't. You haven't. Oh, okay. I got oh you this one. You disappoint. I, just, I picked up the book last week. I was catching up on the Americans before Wednesday night's finale. I apologize. Well, Gilbert, just so you know, not only has read all of of Stephen King, but has ranked them in a previous role when he was working at Vulture. That is true. So that ranking is a little out of date. He's written six books since then, unfortunately. So he's up to 70. He's 70 years old. He has written 70 Book books. And I, I was slightly tempted to send in uh, an additional six, even though I no longer work for Vulture, just to keep it up to date. As a because, completist. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, it seemed a little out of bounds. So this is the one I haven't read. It is, from your description, however, you know, he has, even though People know him for writing about the supernatural and writing about horror. In in the past several years, he has started writing detective fiction. He's yeah. always been someone who's dipped into all different sorts of genres and subgenres. But he had a uh, the Mister Mercedes trilogy, yes, right. which are three books starring this detective Bill Hodges. It was sort of his attempt at hard boiled detective fiction. He did and Joyride too, like a real kind of for hard case crime. He like did. That was actually true. Yeah. He did. He has done two books for a hard case crime, Joyride, and then there was one called The Colorado Kid oh, from many years yeah. ago, which was sort of a light mystery starring a journalist in a small island in Maine. But it, it is interesting because he, you know, is someone who has done so many genres. He has done, you know, all within horror suspense. He's done his vampire book. He's mm-hmm. done his haunted house book. Yeah, I was going to ask you to like book. break it down. Like, what what are the what are the main categories of Stephen King? Well, I feel like that something you wrote in that article for Vulture a while back seems right to me. There's either going to be human monsters or supernatural monsters. And that's really it, I would say, for him. And But either way, there's going to be a monster. And that's one of the things that's fascinating to me is that he can keep finding ways to, you know, regularly enough, invent a new version of a monster you understand. It's never, it's rarely something you kind of go, what? Mm-hmm. You know, it's usually like a play on a th- play on something that you understand on a deeply human level or on a mythic or fairy tale level. And then he gives you some kind of touch that makes it modern or new in some way. So there is always a monster? I would say, would you, I mean, except for, I guess, there's the baseball one. Yeah. The, the JFK the, one, the, right? The girl who loved Tom Gordon. In in the JFK one, 11 the monster is time. time. Yeah, time is the monster. And yeah. it's actually active. It's It's actually fast. I thought that was a fascinating turn on... Time not wanting you to mess with time. So uh, I thought that was brilliant. But most of the time, I would say, would you say that's fair? A monster. Yeah, and then in many books, both exist. I think if you look at a book like It, which was made into an incredibly successful movie last year. They're currently filming the sequel right now. You know, you have this alien supernatural monster that can take on many forms, but you also have the racist, bigoted, bullies that live in the town and they are as dangerous to the kids in that story as Pennywise the clown is. Yes. You know, you bring that up. I have to say this just because I think it might be interesting. Uh, We have a seven-year-old son and he doesn't know anything about Stephen King or anything like that yet. But the game that they play right now on Mm -hmm. the schoolyard tag is called Pennywise. And (laughs) they chase each other around. And when you're it, you're Pennywise. I mean, it makes total perfect sense. And seven, six, five-year-olds are playing this game just to speak to his sort of reach the reach of his creations in the culture. That's fascinating. Okay, that brings up a, a very important question, which is, what is the starter Stephen King? like? And, and I ask that both, you know, now that we have this huge body of Stephen King's work, like sort of what do you think is the age and right book for someone to start on Stephen King? Because mm-hmm. I think it really works very well in, in adolescence. And yeah. then I'd love you each to talk about your own sort of starter Stephen King experience. Well, I would say for if it's a, Teenager, there's a book of novellas called Different Seasons. That that's an early a, one, right? It's an early one, but uh, but what's great is that there's nothing supernatural 
in any of those novellas. Maybe one of them has a little Is that the one that Stand By Me? The one that became uh, Stand By the Body? And Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. And then another one called Apt Pupil that is actually incredibly relevant now as far as like school shootings and things Mm. like that go with like angry youth and all this kind of stuff. Like he was well ahead of his time for all those things. And I feel like a teenager would perhaps read those and see in some way something that spoke to them. Because a lot of them are about teens going through moments of great crisis. Not read, not Shawshank Redemption, obviously. Hmm. I would say the ones that are that are sort of recognizable genres, probably some of his earliest ones. Mm-hmm. Carrie is the, is, I think it remains the shortest book that he's written. It was okay. his first published novel. It's 150 pages or something, and it is about the high school experience. Mm-hmm. It's very relatable, even though it takes place in the, in the 50s or 60s. I can't remember right, exactly yeah. when it takes place. But the idea of being an outsider, of being a bully, of in these superhero times, you know, having the power some sort of external power to inflict upon your abusers. That's a great one to start with. <laughs> Salem's Lot and The Shining, which were his next two, again, are recognizable. One's a vampire story. One's a haunted house story. You know, the more he gets into the 80s, the longer the books get, yeah. the sort of crazier the books get, and the less relatable, perhaps. But those three, I think, which just happen to be his first three, are, are great starters. I have to ask, how old were you when you read your first Stephen King, and what was it? I think... I was 12, and I think it was It, which mm-hmm. is one of his longest books. Uh, it was 10, 11, or 12, because it was uh, around the time that the ABC miniseries came out, which was the one that starred Tim Curry, uh, Tim Curry yeah. as Pennywise the Clown. Yeah. And so it was, it was on TV. It was a big miniseries. There was a, you know, a, a mass market paperback edition 800 900 pages that was out it all worked together on you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so i was like i have to read it and and it and there's that book is is weird it is yes, messy it is. it is sprawling i still think it remains one of his best Great. books yes for sure i agree what was your and start i your think first? Uh, my first i was probably 10 or 11 and it was his a book of stories night shift and um that sort of segued to so i enjoyed those but similarly i would say it was the first true falling in love and part of it, I actually think, is because this isn't a spoiler, because a child dies on the first page of the book. Of The Outsider? Of, the, of it. Of no, it. No, no, I wouldn't okay. ruin The Outsider. All right. Uh, um, you could ruin the first page, I think. <laughs> yes. No, that's okay. But uh, I think, speaking of the appeal of Stephen King to kids, at least to me as a kid, I appreciated that he regularly talked about the kind of danger and predation that children feel they're under mm-hmm. in their youth. And so in, on page one or two when a child is, has his arm ripped off and is dragged into a sewer and there's no fixing it, I felt like this seems right. That's so interesting because, yeah. because you know, the typical parental reaction would be like, that's too scary. Yes. And in fact, I think that it is a natural, as a parent now, a natural parental reaction to say that's too scary and a natural kid reaction to say, if I told you what my life is really like, you would f- fall into a puddle. Mm. You don't understand how scary my life is. I need this to sort of be honest with me. Like I felt like Stephen King was honest with me in a way that a lot of like books that I was being foisted upon as a young reader were not honest hmm. about my life. Gilbert, on your list, you rank as your as the top, at least as of 2014, <laughs> when you did this roundup for Vulture, The Stand, as the, the sort of the, the best of the best. Yeah, I'm. I've, I was conflicted about it then. I've, I'm still conflicted with it now. Part of me, the the true part of me, maybe wanted to put it on it because it is. It's sort of this. It's this comprehensive monster tale. It is really the all of as he says all of the things that he wanted to write about childhood and about monsters. He put in that book, but the stand, the stand remains. You know, it's his. It's his sort of American version of Lord of the Rings. It is yeah. this giant epic journey tale this fight between good and evil when you read it and when you finish it you feel as if you have actually accomplished something as if, <laughs> as if you've read you know one of the important books of the later half of the 20th century this is a weird thing to say because it is a post-apocalyptic novel by Stephen King who's not I think until recent years been considered in quote important mm. but it, it is a journey in the way that the best sort of sprawling novels can be. I was surprised that neither of you mentioned The Stand as sort of the one of the books that you would most recommend to teenagers because for those reasons that it feels to me in that sort of Lord of the Rings way, like a, like a book for, you know, a 13-year-old, right. a 14-year-old. The, the only reason I wouldn't is because somehow it feels like 
if you were reading as a teenager now, the 80s feels older than the 50s, <laughs> which is when it is set. I don't know. There's yeah. just something about the the inherent 80s-ness of The Stand that is that might be off-putting. What's your favorite Stephen King book? I mean, I actually do have to say it. Uh, I mean, as much as it is sort of the cliche of things, but it is because I fell in love with that book at, at the right age, I think is the other thing. And I think there was also something about, maybe there's a nostalgia I have for coming into school with that book and it was so big <laughs> and I could just show off yeah. what a smart kid I was. Look how big this book is, you know. <laughs> Did you read other horror when you were a teenager? I was, yeah, I read Clive Barker, Shirley Jackson, Angela Carter, Peter Straub. I would say like, the, like many Dean of the great. Koontz Dean Koontz was also there. I feel like I came, he came in a tiny bit after and so there was a way that I had kind of gone into uh, a little more left field. So I didn't, Except for a couple books, I didn't read it much. What makes Stephen King special among that group? Like, what did he do that was different, that's distinctive? So I remember I would get his books uh, in the library or something, mm -hmm. and at the back, there would often be, in the paperbacks, a note from him, mm -hmm. from Uncle Stevie, right? And he would sometimes he would just break down in his collections, here's where this story came from, here's this idea. Other times it was actually like a real note to you. And the note, in many ways, sounded just like the fiction kind of folksy, down-to-earth guy, not a guy I would have a beer with because I was a child, obviously, but like a guy, an uncle who I really would love to sit around and have him tell me ghost stories by mm -hmm. the fire. And I think that rare among all writers of any genre is that way that he, the tone of his voice, that sort of friendly, I'm going to just tell you a story and I want to excite you, tone is his fiction as much as it is his real voice. And that... Reading his books feels like seeing an old friend as opposed to necessarily admiring a book by somebody. You know what I mean? At least for me, that's how that's a, a difference. It's interesting because you, on your list, Gilbert, you the number two book you recommend, which is also a favorite book of mine, is his book on writing. Have you also read that, Victor? For sure, yeah, yeah. What is it that he does so well? Like, what, 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 what advice did you take away from that book? The main advice, which I think I, I put in that little blurb there, which is very simple and obvious once you say it, is that if you don't have the time to read, you don't have the time to write. Mm -hmm. Like you cannot do one without the other. And I'm an editor now who used to do more writing. And, and now you do neither. Now, <laughs> now you watch TV. <laughs> so much TV. Um, and, and that is genuinely a piece of advice that I give to young writers, mm -hmm. you know, especially people who are working in criticism ad adjacent fields. Like even if you are not writing about books, mm -hmm. you should constantly be reading, whether it's novels or nonfiction. If you don't do that, I don't know how you can have the context, the history, or the skill set to be a good writer. Right. He is someone who he probably blurbs too many books, <laughs> but you get a sense that in between the one book that he puts out a year, he spends almost all of his time reading everyone else's book. He's just a voracious reader. He clearly, yes. And uh, I think that rubs off. You can see even just in the the sort of uh, the depth and breadth of his references, either in the books themselves or like in interviews and things like that, he absolutely is, I think, an enviable reader of contemporary and classic, whatever that means, uh, yeah. fiction. There has to be, of course, a book that comes in last on this ranking, Gilbert. And as of as of uh, 2014, number 64 for you was Rose Matter. What's so bad about Rose Matter? <laughs> oh, boy. Again, so I need to rework this. List. I, I got I to gotta take it back from Vulture or something. Because I do think in 2018, I, I probably wouldn't put that book last. So there was this period in the, I think it was the earlier mid-90s, where uh, Stephen King wrote uh, an unofficial trilogy of books that the protagonists of which were abused women. So there was Rose Matter, there was Dolores Claiborne, and there was uh, Gerald's Game. Mm -hmm. And it was his attempt to sort of inhabit a female protagonist who were, as is often the case in many of his books, put upon by toxic men, which is something that... You know, which is a, which is a, which has always <laughs> happened, which has always been the case. Yeah. But yes. given where we are uh, right now in the culture, something that is that has been forefronted, toxic masculinity is a term that is used every day in cultural criticism. At the time that I wrote that, I I found it to be an odd mix of this super realistic this this woman who was abused and went to a home for abused women, and and the fantastic her escaping into a painting that would take her to 
a world where there was a minotaur. It was just, it was this weird, at least when I read it, mishmash of, of, of super realistic and super fantastical that did not work for me. I, with all my free time, might want to read that again because I think those three books in particular represent an interesting period in his life. I'm going to assign you a story on this, Gilbert. I think this is an essay. Oh, drat. I'd love to read it. Drat. I'd love to see it, especially a reconsideration of those three. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I think that's what's up next. Okay, one final thing that I have to ask because it's so fun. Let's talk about the movie and film adaptations of Stephen King. Do yeah. you have a favorite among those? It's got to be The Shining, for sure. I mean, although I have a real fondness because I was maybe in my whatever age I was, 20s or something like that, the TV version of It I actually found really frightening at times and grim in a way that, I would almost, I would even say that the movie that came out recently is not. Mm -hmm. Stephen King was not happy with The Shining, right? No. And 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 to say the least. Yeah, I I want to <laughs> he hear talks more about, about that. It every it's, it's in month. the Outsider. Uh, he it comes up in the Outsider. Oh, really? How does yeah. it come up? They have two characters talking about Kubrick, and one of the characters says, "I really like his early stuff more. Uh, you know, uh, Paths of Glory, things like that." Later stuff, I don't know. So, like, they basically, again, him just winking at it. Wow, that's great. Yeah, it's really Has funny. Has he done that in other books? I don't think so. It's I don't still think bothering so. him. Yeah, but it's it's clearly still. But he, but it, I will say this time, it doesn't seem, he seems to clearly be having a little fun with it as opposed to it feeling like a grudge. You know what I think it found interesting, which I didn't realize until, you know, seeing it for the sixth or seventh time, is that Diane Johnson, the novelist, mm -hmm. yeah, worked yeah. on that screenplay. Yeah, sure. It's yeah. like, it's not an obvious match <laughs> that's right <laughs> you know author of le divorce and le Mar mariage yes. and all of that yeah i was i found that surprising are you a shining fan or are you do you take stephen king's side here uh i don't know how anyone can take stephen king's side other than the people in his family he is absolutely wrong i mean <laughs> and and i understand why if you read the shining if you read the book and you understand what it meant to him yeah. as a writer who was and is an alcoholic yeah. and was writing a book about how that negatively affects your family, to see it turned into a movie where, as he correctly says, Jack Nicholson is insane from the first scene. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And unlike the book, it is not this process of this good man being ground down by a haunted house. You can see why he, this book that was so personal to him, just took on this different form that most people probably see as the definitive version of The Shining. That's, I, was, I would guess. Uh, but the other thing I kind of appreciate about the difference between the movie and the book is that I think the book, in many ways, it allows for some degree of redemption for the dad. Yeah. And that I kind of love Kubrick's for saying, you can't come back from how hmm. badly you treated your family. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, you were just bad. And that's how you will be remembered by your child. And I feel like that is hardcore. And I know why that would be terrifying to a father. Yeah. You know. And he is so invested in reclaiming the story that he wrote a sequel yep. to The Shining called yep. Dr. Sleep, which was a novel that came right, out. Right, that's pretty recent. In which it's an older Danny Torrance. It just, it it galls him. It's yeah. just not, it's something that he can't let go. Yeah. Now that's post your ranking, isn't it, Dr. Correct. Sleep? So Wait, no, it I might think be in there. there. It might I be think there. it's in there. Yeah. In here? Yeah. Where, how, what was your opinion of, of Dr. Um, Sleep? It's, it's, it's in the middle of the pack. It's like a 30s or something. Yeah. Right? I looked at it again. Yeah. To, he, yeah, he puts Danny Torrance in the story about if I'm remembering correctly, and I'm probably not, sort of emotional vampires yeah. who feed off the souls of people. Oh, it is With The Shining. Yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he uses The Shining, again, as sort of a superpower-like type thing to defeat these, uh, spoiler, to defeat these people. And, <laughs> and it, it just, it felt an odd thing to follow up that story with. I mean, the thing that is interesting about it is Danny is trying to grapple with the fact that his father was a, an alcoholic, was a bad person yeah. this and then he becomes an alcoholic in that book, right? right. He, so I thought that was interesting, like uh, the idea of things, yeah, inheriting yeah. these yeah. things. Is The Shining your favorite? A movie? Yeah. Or adaptation, film, TV. Yeah. It's pretty good. But again, I, I, I loved and do love that TV version of, of it. it. I didn't realize it until years later, but <laughs> it is sort of like the, the horror version of The Big Chill. It's like <laughs> something happens to these people. They get a little older. They come back. They sort of hang out in a hotel for a few days yes. and then and There's talk about the old times. And then like something else happens. And, yes. And there was something appealing to me, I think, even as as a young man about the idea of 
of of friends who hadn't seen each other in a long time coming back to reminisce and then go out into the world again. That's right. All right. So I think the takeaway here is listeners go out and read The Outsider, but also read it and pass it along to your children. Is that, is that where we land here? It would be a great one to pass on and different seasons. All right. Victor Laval, Gilbert Cruz, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Alexander Alter joins us now with some news from the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. What's new this week? So this week, everyone is gathered in New York for the Book Expo of America, and there are a lot of books that people are excited about. One of the authors who's visiting this week, who I had the opportunity to interview a few weeks ago, who's gotten a lot of attention from other writers and booksellers, is a debut novelist named Tommy Orange. His book is coming out next week. Knopf is publishing it, and it's called There, There. And he's got a really interesting background. He grew up in Oakland, and he's, his father is uh, from o- Oklahoma, and he's Cheyenne. And Tommy Orange really explores the experience of being an urban, what he calls an urban Indian in this book. This is a sort of sprawling, multi-generational narrative that looks at the lives of urban Indians. There's 12 characters who all end up at this big powwow in Oakland, and they all come from, you know, their lives converge in unexpected ways. But what's interesting is he really gets at sort of the ambivalence that some of the characters feel about their heritage. It includes older generations of Native Americans who are kind of alienated from their families and estranged from their kind of ancestral practices and beliefs. And then younger characters who are surprisingly interested in it but are discouraged by their older relatives from sort of embracing and learning about their heritage. So it's it's a very surprising book, and it's structured in a really unusual way. There's these recurring characters, and the chapters get shorter towards the end as it builds this sort of crescendo. But speaking to Mr. Orange was fascinating because he really emphasized kind of how the structure reflected what his motivation was for writing it. He said that he wanted to write a polyphonic type of novel because he felt like these were voices that are so rarely represented in literature and in in popular culture. So this is part of what feels like a new wave of Native American writers. Yes, it's really an interesting moment right now. We're seeing a lot of young writers who come from indigenous backgrounds who are publishing really groundbreaking work and formerly innovative work. They include the poet Tommy Pico, um, other poets like Lely Long Soldier, Natalie Diaz, and the essayist and memoirist Alyssa Washuda and Sasha Lapointe. And a number of these writers, including Mr. Orange, are graduates of the Institute of American Indian Arts near Santa Fe, which started a graduate writing program in 2013. And I think it's the only writing program of its kind in the country that is largely staffed by Native writers and designed for Native writers, although it's not exclusive to Indigenous writers. But I think it really has helped kind of create a movement and encourage this proliferation of new literature that some are saying mirrors the uh, Native Renaissance in the 1970s and 1980s, where you saw writers like Louise Erdrecht and Joy Harjo and Leslie Marmon Silko publishing really acclaimed work as well. All right. Well, lots to look forward to, Alexander. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Philip Roth recently died, and joining us now to talk about his work and his legacy, I have our book critic, Dwight Garner, Tony Scott, or A.O. Scott, our film critic and also a very fine book critic, as well as Taffy Bodesar Ackner, a feature writer for the magazine and for the culture section of the New York Times, to talk about Roth. Hi, guys. Hey, Pamela. Hey. Hello. All right. Well, let's start off. Dwight, you wrote an appreciation of of Roth in the, the late hours of the night after his death. What was it that you really, like, most wanted to, to get at in that Oh, piece? God. Well, that, that that's the thing. You come at Roth, and there are so many things to get at, that it's the hardest thing about Roth is, is to focus your feelings and, and, and you know, focus your, in a, in a way, your, your sort of awe at his achievement because there's so many strings to pull from. And for me, I think, I had, I had to, you have to comment with Roth being dead now on, frankly, the end of this, I hate to use this phrase, but this greatest generation for best, for, for better and for worse of these great white American male writers, Mailer, Bellow, Roth, Updike. You know, Roth's death is really the passing of a era in, in American fiction. So worth saying that. But, you know, he was he was protean. He could do so many things well that it was hard for me to know where to begin. So you start with the, with the of course, with the early comic stuff, which is how he sort of broke through because mm-hmm. he was saying things about the Jewish experience that frankly made, I mean, Taffy will pick up on this, but, but you know, he was loathed by a lot of 
Jewish readers at the time when he wrote Portnoy's Company. Really the attacked, things he was, attacked by the, the things he was saying. So you start with the comedy. He broke through with that comic voice, and he always kept that sense of being just, I said in my piece, guided by voices. The sense of these crazy motor mouth men mostly coming out of him all the time, this ebullient sense. And from there, he had so many ways to go. And I think we can let other people take it for a bit, but that was sort of the start for me. I want to distract you just for a minute because we lost another great writer of really the 20th century, although he also wrote into the 21st century, Tom Wolfe, recently. And you similarly wrote an appreciation of Wolfe. And I'm curious, I mean, the outpouring of appreciation in a way seems much greater with Roth. And I was trying to figure out why that is. Is it is it is it the difference between someone who was primarily a novelist and someone who was more a journalist? I think so. I mean, Roth touched people where they live. I mean, Wolf was a great stylist, a great observer. He was cool. He was satirical. Roth could be cool. It could be satirical, but but also went for the heart and, and went for the guts and went for the groin in a way that, you know, the, the way that nonfiction just can't. I mean, at the end of at the end of the day, I respect all of Tom Wolfe's arguments for what nonfiction means in the world, but fiction will always beat it because fiction can say things that nonfiction just can't. I mean, almost all the time anyway. And so uh, Roth just felt like a heavier blow, I think, even though I, I you know, adore both writers. When we were trying to figure out how to write about Roth and, and what to cover here at the Times, there were so many different strands we could bring in and did um, because there's been a lot in the paper. There was an essay uh, by Joe Berger about Roth and Newark. Taffy, you wrote about Roth and Jewishness. Yes, I wrote about what it meant to be Jewish and figuring out your Jewish identity and how Roth, who when I was reading him for the first time in the mid-80s, was not, had not just come on the scene, right? He'd been doing it for people like me for years and years and years. And the most poignant thing I thought about his approach to it was that before he wrote about the American Jewish experience, nobody was writing about it for public consumption. It was something that Jews talk about with each other. It was something that Jews whispered about, lest people find out that there are kind of cracks in our very tenuous veneer, right? And he, what he did was he brought us into the public. He shared our experience. And by doing that, he almost legitimized us as a real avenue of the American experience. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly the sort of the the, the progress and the tension in a way in, in his work both it's both dramatized within the work, but it's the work is also subject to it between the kind of insular, tribal, right. anxious sense of being an outsider people, right. and the the sort of the the the, the conquest of, of of the mainstream. And his his career just sort of dramatizes that movement, you know, through which is a movement of upward upward mobility, of of acculturation, of rediscovery of one's own culture, and also of the divisions within it. I mean, Goodbye Columbus, where he starts, is all about the internal fractures within American Jewish communities. It's about the different kinds of Jews, which we weren't allowed to admit existed. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly as you say. And that's why people were yelling at him in the streets. That's why the Jews hated him and called him self-hating which is this whole other weird thing that talking about yourself makes you self-hating, which is <laughs> well, the burden my people bear. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of American Jew was he? Because as as Tony says, it's such a fractured community. Even to talk about sort of the Jewish American community or experience is, is so multifaceted. He existed in the tension of, of the post-war figuring out how much we should assimilate. Mm -hmm. Are we supposed to be tied to the thing that just happened? Are we supposed to take this American dream and run with it? Are we supposed to remember? Are we supposed to forget? Are we supposed to never forget, but always remember? Are we supposed to yell at our children for for not continuing the thing that, that we started, which was assimilation? Are you allowed to assimilate enough? And those were very dangerous questions. Also, the question, I mean, is is it a tragedy or is it a joke, right? You know, right. I mean, like, are, are we laughing or are we crying? Mm-hmm. And that's that's just sort of, I feel like and such that, small portions. It, right. <laughs> <laughs> but that that's another kind of interesting tension that 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 goes through so much right. of, of his work. And it, and in a way, the the sort of the novels 
the two novels between Goodbye Columbus and Portnoy's Complaint, When She Was Good and, and, and Letting Go, are sort of his buttoned-up, respectable literary, I went to the University of Chicago, I read a lot of Henry James, mm-hmm. I'm going to enter the mainstream, you know, this way, um, in, 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 a proper, in a proper coat and tie with my hair right. parted. And then sort of Portnoy's Complaint begins the kind of the... the Literal that's unbuttoning. He couldn't. You know? He couldn't pull it off. Like that. That's what I would say was the that's difference between. That's an interesting between... thing to say about uh, Portnoy's complaint. <laughs> <laughs> he, no, but that's what could. I would say about the difference between his fiction and Wolf's fiction was that Wolf was an observer and the greatest of observers, but. But Roth was working it out all the way to the end. Roth had no answers, was not cool, was not like you said. There was no remove. Yeah. You said cool and satirical. And this was he was suffering. And Wolf was trying to prove a point, too. He had this whole grandiose notion of himself as the new Zola. He was going to show us the world. And and uh, Philip Roth understood that by showing us the world, you show us the workings of of the human mind. It's, It's not stalking the billion-footed beast. It's stalking the two-footed beast in a way, um, or sometimes, often I would say four uh, for him. It's interesting because you talk about, Dwight, about his his incredible range, and that's really true in terms of the the, the different registers that he could, could work in. But it's also fascinating that he did circle back to his own experience and to variations on it. He didn't go back in time further than his own experience. It's one of the most remarkable things about some of his books. I'm thinking of American Pastoral in, in particular. You read that book and there's a sense of a man with a bulldozer plowing the same piece of ground from different directions for about eight years. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just a sense where he never runs out of things to say about these primal themes. Right. And that's what you're right about that. And you get that even even in, in singular books, not just the whole career. I know that people are, especially critics, reluctant to, to do this and hate these kind of questions. But since you brought up American Pastoral, I'm going to ask it anyway, which is, is that the book if if you had to name one? For it you. is for me, I think. Although, okay. although the, the the dark the dark hearted part of me um, will always love American Sabbath. I mean, it's just one of the rawest things. Um, um, Sabbath theater. Sabbath. Sabbath theater. What did I say? American, American Sabbath. American Sabbath. Which is a great. It sounds like a great album. For it. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay, yeah. You write um, that one. <laughs> my Ozzy Osbourne fandom coming up. I, just, um, <laughs> I would dissent. I mean, I I admire both of those books. Those those books seem seem both to me in different ways like self-consciously major performances. I'm um, sensing the counterlife coming out. And the out. counterlife is the one for me. The counterlife okay. is is it's it's it grows in my mind. You know, I'm always surprised when I when I pick it up again or reread it again how short it is. How so what's that book is. about for those who have Well that read that, it. that that comes there's the Zuckerman trilogy which introduces this character of Nathan Zuckerman, who would be also the perceiving consciousness of uh, American pastoral and the human stain, and was Philip Roth sort of alter? Yeah, know? sort of alter. Also a novelist, you know, with 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 an almost identical biography to Philip Roth. Although there's another alter ego also named Philip Roth who turns up in other books like Operation Shylock. But the the counter life is an amazing kind of deconstruction of the whole apparatus of fiction. So it, he kind of takes apart the novel and shows that you can invent different selves, different versions of the same thing. Um, it's postmodern, but it's the thing that's amazing about it is it's, it, it's not difficult. You know, it doesn't have the sort of intimidating obduracy of, you know, of a Thomas Pynchon or, or, or John Barth or other of the sort of experimental novels. It's more experimental in some ways than, than, than a lot of their books, but it does so in this incredibly vivid, comical, self-aware language. And The Counterlife just is the book that for me is just proves that he could do anything. You know, that, that there were there was just his imagination in a way had had no limits. And he could make the novel whatever he wanted it to be. But for you, Taffy, it's American Pastoral also. It's, it's American Pastoral. And it's also all of these alter egos are so interesting to me because it wasn't enough for him to tell these great stories. He had to create a character that showed us that the most important thing was that he was bearing witness to it. And American Pastoral, I, I mean, I couldn't I couldn't believe it when I read it. I couldn't believe the sentences. I couldn't believe how I was just inside it before anything had even happened. Like that was, I think, the peak of something that, like a mastery that I still can't get my head around. But yeah. 
I think for many of our listeners who are not American, Philip Roth is one of those writers that people think of as like a quintessential American Mm -hmm. novelist. And a lot of listeners of this podcast are not in this country and sort of curious, like, what is it that, that, where does he fit in? What did he do? Did he change American literature? Did he just embody it in some way? What makes him so important in the landscape? Oddly, one one of the best first ways to approach Roth is from the end of his career, because he put on these... There was, there was this sense, I would say, in the 80s and 90s where, you know, for example, John Updike reviewed a lot of Philip Roth's novels um, for The New Yorker. And there was a sense of, of Updike kind of toying with Roth a little bit, you know, not taking him entirely seriously, still feeling that somehow, you know, Updike was the one. And, um, you know, and then there was this sense starting in 1995 that Roth just turned it on, wrote 11 novels in 15 years, three or four of which were obvious masterpieces. And sort of you felt that he was just making good on cashing every check he ever wrote at mm-hmm. once. There was this sense of just paying things off and just I'm here and I'm doing this. And I, I, I've had this reserve, this strong silent reserve you felt in the early works. Somehow he held onto that all and just cashed all his chips in at the end. And it was, was this beautiful performance. But in terms, of, in terms of the entire career, I mean, we talked about, you know, the sense of being able to do so much and – you know, he just got better, which doesn't happen often in American literary careers. It's, it's the rare career in which the writer's later books kind of pick up steam and pull away like that. Well, it was interesting. I think there is another sort of contrast with Tom Wolfe because um, Tom Wolfe sort of there was a kind of, to put it kindly, maybe sort of deterioration towards the end of the quality, especially of the Roth was smart novels. to retire. I mean, yeah. he, you know, arguably wrote one book too many, possibly, but I, I wouldn't even say that. But but uh, other people have felt that. But it's clear that Updike wrote about four or five books too many. Yeah. And Roth knew exactly when to stop. Right? There's also, I mean, I, I think one of the things um, that, that, that sometimes in a way maybe gets, I, I wouldn't say short shrift, but that is easy to overlook because there's the – there's the voice. There's the subject matter. There's the 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 the, the personality um, asserting itself on, on the page. But the the achievement of the prose style is something. I just you know, a couple of weeks before he died, for no particular reason, I picked up Indignation, which is one of the few I hadn't read before. And that's a later novel. Yeah, it's a later novel. But th- there's this thing that he can do, which is just present. There's a sort of naturalness and a sense that that using plain vernacular American speech and representing the, the the rhythms and patterns and structures of of a smart person thinking that just comes to life on the page in a way that seems totally effortless and accessible. You're exactly right. And I mean, easy. But if you ever tried to do it, it's really it's impossible. Not, I mean, you know why? Because you have to have things to say. Yeah. I mean, he has voice and not style. You can be uptight you I, have, and you could have a lot of style, but Roth actually in every sentence had a nail to deliver. Yeah, you know? that's it. I agree. I, and I think that kind of articulation comes from an outrage and a disgust that never relented <laughs> to the point where I would read his later books and think, oh my God, what if you don't mellow with age? Like what if you're still as angry <laughs> yes. at don't the you, beginning as you are at the end? But, Don't you love that line? Something like, "How can I die? Everything I hate is here." <laughs> <laughs> but I really, I really did think that that like his articulation came from how articulate you become when you're angry. Yeah. That he and and I think to your question about what people who don't live here could understand about this kind of service he provided was that he lived apart from the culture. He lived, you know, he exiled himself a little bit. On the Upper West Side? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he did a little. And like, to connect and to the, and to the Connecticut. Of Connecticut. There was this yeah. there was this moment in Exit Ghost where he's exiled himself to Connecticut and he is he's living apart and he comes back to New York and he is walking around Manhattan and he cannot believe all of the cell phones. He is he is outraged by the amount of cell phones. He's confused by it. He's upset by it. And it just reminds you that you're kind of like this frog in, in slowly boiling water where you just didn't even realize that this thing had happened where all of a sudden we have these like machines attached to our head all the time. That was his gift. That was the thing that somebody from another country could look at this and say like the way you you – the way you can talk about American culture is to is to hate it from up close, but at a slight remove. As an aside, I have to say that he didn't email me often, but when Philip Roth did email me, um, I would get that little auto you know, signature at the end that said sent for my iPad, which I always found (laughs) so like so disconcerting. Like I wanted it to be, you know, um, (laughs) you know, typewritten out on an old um, manual. 
Actually, that was one of the lovely things that you could see on social media was everyone was sort of going through their files and taking out. There was like Nancy Franklin put up this great little short typewritten note that he sent her thanking her for her tribute to Brendan Gill Mm -hmm. at his memorial. Brendan Gill, longtime New Yorker editor and and apparently sent around quite a lot of those notes. The best note I saw, I think it was on Facebook, the music critic now moved on to writing other things, but Jody Rosen was talking about someone who visited Roth in the hospital after Dylan won the Nobel Prize. And Roth's reaction was, congratulations to me. I'm in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> I've been elected. <laughs> um, so he had, I, I think he had a sense of humor about that. What do you think? He uh, did have a sense of humor about it. Yeah. There was a prank that Tablet did. I think Alana Newhouse did it, suggesting that he won the Nobel and everyone, everyone just took her down. And she according to social media yesterday, he called her up and said, that was the funniest thing I've ever seen. Wow. Yeah. A call from Philip I, Roth. I think it was, I, or an email, but either way, I, as someone who hasn't and will never communicate with him until we get to the Jewish heaven <laughs> um, <laughs> or hell, you know, jealous. Was, just to go back to the themes of Jewishness in his writing, I mean, did he grow up religious and did he, you know, to what extent was his writing about Jewishness about the religion and what to what extent was it about the culture? It was very little about the religion. I don't I don't think that he was in a religious household beyond the fact that the way people were sort of um, inertia religious mm-hmm. at the time. Um, there's no pork on my I have two sets of plates. I don't really know why, but I'll go out and eat clams. I just won't bring it into my home. This kind of transition period mm-hmm. of the American Jew of of letting go, literally letting go. But the things that made him craziest were the were the sentiment and the fear that bad things would continue to happen, that the Jews were people who, even at the same time that he understood that 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 Jews are are never were never truly accepted, mm-hmm. he he also, thought that we had to do away with this fear. We had to do away with with the harping of the mother. Don't you know if you don't marry a Jewish girl? Don't you know? Don't you know? And that was that's the thing that I'm talking about. That's the dirty laundry that 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 Jews who discuss Judaism never want to air. That we are conflicted about these things. He was a great enemy of of anything that he he understood as as piety or sentimentality. Oh my God. Totally. Which is always about a kind of a denial of of the truth, the truth of 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 the body, the truth of of, right. of desire, just the sort of the the realities. And so right. I mean he 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 set himself in a way, I mean obviously he didn't anticipate or or solicit the the sort of the hatred that, that and resentment right. um, and shaming that came his way. But he did set himself up as as a blasphemer and yeah. and 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 from the some of the very earliest stories like defender of the faith there there is this 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 kernel of like well let's see what is the most deeply held piety of this community and how can i poke at it i mean the the whole that whole Anne Frank subplot oh my God. In, in, in the Ghostwriter is is just you know it's it's like Jerry Seinfeld making out in Schindler's List. You know, right. it's, it's, it's like, <laughs> it is. But then also go? you think of the Potemkins. I always think when I think of like the kind of new American Jewish American dream, I think of the Potemkins' yes. refrigerator full of fruit. You know, like <laughs> these people. His parents are his aunt is home still talking about how nobody the black market in Europe. And these people have an entire refrigerator <laughs> just for fruit, fresh fruit. What? And a pool club? What? And One a nose job? <laughs> Amazing. It's interesting because so many of the appreciations are talking about him as this kind of, uh, this era has ended. And yet, especially since the 2016 election, it seemed like, you know, people really wanted to know what Roth would have to say, how he would write about this, you know, what would he make of it? Of course, the obvious parallels with the plot against America. It's kind of interesting, like, that it didn't entirely feel like his era had passed. I don't know if... if I think we're always going to know what Roth would have said about certain things. I mean, you remember (laughs) the Updike's rabbit novels. He checked in with us every 10 years and kind of took, took the pulse of the nation and, um, you know, I, th- I think I was hoping, I, I hoped deep down that actually Philip Roth was spending his time writing a novel novel about a novelist who retires from the world. And yet this is the novel he's writing. This is his final book and we're going to get it. Maybe it's, maybe it's out there. Maybe it's still to come. But um, didn't you want 
every six months, just a perfect interview with Philip Roth. No, yeah, I mean, he, you know, he did an interview with Chip McGrath uh, late last year, early this year that we ran in the book review in January. Absolutely yeah, great. and it, you know, we wanted to. Everyone wanted to know what do you think of Trump? What are you making of this country right now? What do you think about Me Too? What do you think about the issues around race that you raised in the Human Stain? But we know the answers, and that's what's great is that anyone who read the plot against America because you were a paranoid Jew and it hit you exactly where you needed to be hit. Like the, our only answer was C. Right. See? <laughs> but it felt good, right? It Didn't felt, it? Yeah. It and it felt like, it. He, like he had predicted all of this. He, he, he stands for, I, I don't have that curiosity because I feel like I know enough to know what he would have said. I think he predicted all of it. I think that he has already spoken. And I think that with all those novels, even the last ones that felt repetitive to me, I know that's, that's blasphemy also, but when I couldn't kind of distinguish one from the other, I felt like he had said what he needed to say, and now I can apply it. Like, he has, he has taught us, and now he's, he's moving on. I'm saying like a service piece here, yeah. Taffy. <laughs> <laughs> what Philip Roth would have would said. Have said. That's right. <laughs> I'll do a, a book review column that's like what Philip Roth would have thought You'll of You'll provide that for yeah. us on an Anytime. ongoing basis. I'll Anytime. buy that book. If you write Anytime. it, I'll buy it. Thank you. I'm All right. Taffy Brodesser, Ackner, Dwight Garner, Tony Scott, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Thank Bamwa. you, Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.